0: Hey through Crosses family, welcome back to our podcast. My name is AJ. I'm the pastor of life groups and discipleship, and we are approaching the home stretch of our Explore God series. We've been having great conversations, and so if you haven't come out yet, we've got a couple of conversations left. Wednesday night from 6:30 to 8:30 in our main sanctuary. So today we are wrestling with one of the common complaints that we hear from people outside of the church. How can you Christians believe in the God of sexism, slavery, and slaughter? So today we have another awesome conversation for you guys. We hope you enjoy it. And so with that, let's go deeper.
1: All right. You know how we like to start this? Danny this weekend talked about these ideas about these kind of and really what we believe again a lot of these questions we're gonna they're gonna turn into these misconceptions about who God is that people look at the scriptures and they might see that there's the existence of slavery talks about slavery or talks about uh, the differences between men and women maybe differences in role and function talks about things about, about these holy wars that God would call people to go and you know you think about Jericho march around Jericho and destroy, destroy it utterly and completely. And people start to wonder about who this God is and what he's like. And is he really a God that's worthy of our worship and our adoration and our attention and our love? And what Danny uh, helped us walk through was that we have a God that's reflected in scripture that does something so much different. He's so much different than the world around him. He's so much different than the culture that was around him. He brought not, not slavery, he brought, brought freedom. He didn't bring sexism, he brought love and not not just even equality but he brought a so, uh, nature uh, bringing people created in his image male and female he created them an image and a picture of holiness of goodness not of division but of unity and not of like slaughter but a world that God's world is a world of peace but it's also a world of justice where God, uh, God can bring his justice through various means. So Danny brought us through all these things, and in the end, brought us to this place of a commitment, talking about the Bible, and the Bible can be used as a weapon to hurt and to harm. And, you know, maybe in this room, we, we, might, get, we might be able to get to it later if we have the time, but uh, just maybe some of you, I know that people in this room and certainly people in our church have been wounded by a misuse of the Bible, but really, when we look at the scriptures, and, and that's actually what we get the opportunity to talk about tonight and some of the questions that we got, is show these kind of specific instances and some specific examples of how God is actually the opposite of all these things. He's a, he's not the He's not the God of slavery, sexism, and slaughter. He's a God of a, something He is a completely different God than maybe some of us might think of him as. So I want to first, I'm gonna have our panel introduce themselves to us. So I'm Ryan Suzuki, I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you're here. I'm
2: Patty Crown,
1: director of care and equipping.
0: My name is AJ, and I'm the pastor of Life Groups and Discipleship.
1: Yeah, we're so glad to have you. AJ is actually leading one of our classes. It's all about um, evangelism, and he, ha- he he got a substitute teacher for himself to cover for tonight, and so he's here tonight.
0: I heard sexism, slavery, and slaughter, and I came running yes, through he, the door. he, I he had was to be here.
1: AJ, <laughs> tell, he, every week he'll tell us because AJ is a part of. Uh, the team that creates, AJ creates a lot of the content and kind of the kind of overarching guide of where we're going to be going from a preaching calendar, him and Danny. And every week, AJ's like, oh man, I wish I was going to be there. I, I got to get in there. And so, you know, hey, we're glad to have you. Here's one of the questions that kind of came in last week. Um, Danny said this last weekend that scripture and the Christian faith stand against sexism, slavery, and slaughter. And yet still people will make these claims. I mean, it's a very common thing in a very... Um, you know, a legitimate question to ask. Like, we see these things in the Bible. Uh, wh- how, how, do you, how do you make it all work? But can you take us, I'm going to have our panel, like each one of us has a little piece of it, but can I want to go in a little deeper dive on each of those topics individually and where we see it in the scriptures. Danny kind of drew out that they are there, but let's just go in and talk about it. So, um, Patty, I know this is the one that you wanted to really wrestle with was, can you talk to us about how God is not a God that is of sexism, that he is not a sexist God.
2: Yeah, I think when we're looking at each of these topics, it's so important to to find the story within the story. Uh, scripture is one story. We have creation, fall, and recreation. And beginning in Genesis, the impact of the fall is, is going to be the oppression of people. In particular, women are going to struggle um, with oppression. We see that the enemy, Satan, now has is at war with the woman because she is going to be the one who is going to bring forth the promised Redeemer. So if you look at Genesis 3.15, God promises there will be enmity between Satan's offspring and the woman's. So we have an enemy who's out to oppress women. And when we see the oppression of women, it's important for us to remember it's rooted in the fall. It's not God who is the oppressor. It is God's enemy who oppresses women to make God look bad. So it's really important that we we recognize that Because of that, we do see the oppression of women, and we see the same thing with slavery, throughout Scripture, throughout the story of Scripture. And what is wonderful is that God is so honest about it. He doesn't hide it in His Word. He doesn't pretend it isn't happening among His people, but because it's in Scripture does not mean He's condoning it. In fact, if we take a deeper dive into the culture and the context of what's happening, we can then see that God is actually opposing the oppression of women, of any form of sexism. And so we're going to walk through just one example in scripture. There's so many, but hopefully it'll give you a bit of a framework if if you or somebody you you care about is bringing up some of these some of these cases in the story of God and his people where we see what looks like God being on the side of oppressing When in actuality, as we take a deeper dive, God is in the side of liberating. So we're going to look at Numbers 5, a very curious passage. Um, Numbers 5, we're going to be starting in verse 14. It's going to be a few verses. Try to follow along. It's pretty crazy. And if a feeling of jealousy comes over a husband, and he becomes jealous because of his wife who has defiled herself, or if a feeling of jealousy comes over him and he becomes jealous of her though she has not defiled herself— Then the man is to bring his wife to the priest. He is also to bring an offering for her of two quarts of barley flour. He is not to pour oil over it or put frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain for remembrance to draw attention to guilt. The priest is to bring her forward and have her stand before the Lord. Then the priest is to take holy water in a clay bowl, take some of the dust from the tabernacle floor and put it in the water after the priest has the woman stand before the Lord, he is to let her hair down and place in her hands the grain offering for remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. The priest is to hold the bitter water that brings a curse. The priest will require the woman to take an oath and will say to her, if no man has slept with you, if you have not gone astray and become defiled while under your husband's authority, but unaffected by this bitter water that brings a curse, but if you have gone astray... While under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has slept with you, at this point, the priest will make the woman take the oath with a sworn curse. And he is to say to her, may the Lord make you an object of your people's cursing and swearing when he makes your womb shrivel and your belly swell. May this water that brings the curse into your stomach, causing your belly to swell and your womb to shrivel. And the woman will reply, amen, amen. Then the priest is to write these curses on a scroll and wash them off into the bitter water. He will require the woman to drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and it will enter her to cause bitter suffering. The priest is to take grain offering of jealousy for the woman, present the offering before the Lord, bring it to the altar. The priest is to take a handful of grain offering as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. Afterward, he will require the woman to drink the water. When he makes her drink the water, if she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, the water that brings a curse will enter her to cause bitter suffering. Her body will swell and her womb will shrivel. She will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is pure, she will be unaffected and will be able to conceive children.
1: Did you guys catch that? That is in the Bible.
2: Crazy is that just? And this is this is a passage that if is anybody familiar with this passage?
1: Anyone ever heard ever that? Ever read yeah, this I got a before? Couple.
2: You're welcome. Yeah. I'm so happy. Now you've to all you heard have, it. We'll be we'll be creating an entire Bible study based yeah. on Numbers five. No, numbers just, five. It. But it is a really important passage because it is one that is used um, to say that God is a misogynist, that God hates women, and in reality, when again we look into the context of what is happening. Um, First of all, Numbers is a book all about wilderness. It's the supernatural grace of God extended to sinful people. It's, It's Israel's wandering and this idea that if Israel keeps God central, she'll flourish. But the minute God is not central, she will not flourish. And so even in this testing, it is, will God be the decider of this woman's guilt or innocence? Or will those who have cultural power, the husband and the priest, be the deciders? super fascinating so it identifies this and this injustice there's a spirit of jealousy so in this in the culture if a husband just thought his wife had done something he could have her disciplined stoned and god is saying no a spirit of jealousy is not enough that is in, that is an injustice to women and so god comes up with this plan through his priests that they are to take this bitter water now there's nothing in the dirt to make her stomach swell so in the end, God is deciding who is guilty and who is innocent. And this is considered what is called an ordeal by fire or an ordeal by trial. We saw this with the Salem witch hunts. But what's fascinating by all the cultures at the time had these ordeals by trial. But in their cultures of the time, it took a miracle to prove your innocence. So again, somebody's thrown into a river and if they don't float, What is it? How does it work again? If they think they're guilty. Well, of course we think that's what we're made of. We think it took a miracle to prove you were innocent. So lots of innocent people died because they weren't given a miracle in God's economy. It takes a miracle to prove she's guilty. So he completely flips the culture so that he can be the judge of women instead of those who had the cultural power. Isn't this fascinating? And some actually connect it to the woman caught in adultery, that when Jesus is writing in the dust, that potentially he might have been writing Leviticus in the dust. He was identifying to those who were accusing the woman caught in adultery in Luke 8 that God decides her guilt. You don't decide her guilt. So it's super powerful. So the accusers Those with the cultural power don't get to decide the consequences. This is God's love for women. God the just is the judge. He is the mediator between the accused and the accuser. He's protecting the innocent from injustice. And again, we see this connecting to the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus silencing her accusers. And then the most beautiful piece of this is Jesus says, Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. I, the one who can. I, the one who know you're guilty... I will not condemn you why because I'm going to die for your adultery. I will be both judged and justice at the same time. So it tilts us forward to the cross of God's of God's um perfect justice meted out in Jesus.
1: Yeah. I feel I feel like part of what we're doing here is sometimes like a lot of times people will go to the Old Testament and look at the laws and I want to come back to a little bit of the uh, of what Jesus' relationship with women, and kind of where we see that, but actually reminds me of something. AJ, you were talking earlier today um, about you were actually sharing with me some f- kind of funny laws <laughs> that exist even in the United States, and a lot, and just this idea that laws really only make sense if you know the context where they're given. Do you know what I mean? Like, all, can you can you unpack that a little bit sure. for us? Share with us some of these great. Fun laws. Yeah, so
0: in this conversation, you're going to hear us say a lot of the times, well, if you go back to the culture, and you might say, oh, that feels like a cop-out, like why is it in there in the first place? Well, this is where the illustration really just kind of clicked for me, so I'm hoping it clicks for you guys. Um, Did you know that in Arizona, that it is currently illegal to stick your donkey in a bathtub?
1: So have you got to go move your donkey? Yeah.
0: You so if you got your donkey here. in the bathtub, you got to get it out. Yeah. Did you know that? And did you know in Kentucky it's currently illegal to carry ice cream in your pocket? Currently. <laughs> Who you would could, carry ice cream in <laughs> your
2: pocket anyway? Someone's got so ice cream. So
0: hopefully, hopefully right now you're just being like, what in the world is going on? Why do these laws exist? They make no sense until you go back to the 1920s when in Arizona they had a flash flood. And sure enough, this guy with his donkey in a bathtub spent so many resources trying to get his donkey safe, to safety. And so the people of the time wrestled with this very situation, saw that it required a lot of resources to get this donkey out. And so they outlawed it saying, "Okay, no more donkeys in bathtubs. I still agree. I
1: still agree with it.
0: (laughs) Right. There's a lot of resources. I don't want a donkey in my bathtub. I don't know how you're going to fit a donkey in the East Bay. But um, the point being is that you only understand the true heart behind the law when you visit what it's supposed to govern, right? So it's not just a donkey in a bathtub. It's being wise about resources. That's the heart behind the law. Ice cream. In Kentucky, there was a, a scheme where you put ice cream in your pocket And you would lure a horse. And when that horse would follow you, you would take it. So it was about theft. Right? So it's not necessarily just about ice cream. The heart behind the law itself is about theft. And the only reason why this is like such an instant like click analogy is the law comes to life when you try to do your homework of what is this law governing? And sometimes just the nature of law, how many lawyers in here? Anybody? No, that's okay. Um, The nature of the law is one that says, okay, here are the boundaries. Here are the boundaries of what's happening. So you're going to see a lot of boundaries and rightly so when we talk about more of these. But you're also going to see a lot of, hey, th- this is something that is good to do, just as Patty, you were saying. like This is, this is something that, man, man, this makes no sense to me. What's going on with all this dust and water and clay jars and offerings? But like, if you do your homework in the cultural setting, you start to realize, yeah, this is all about who has the power. And so all these different laws come to life only if we go to our cultural context, and so now it's a choice for you guys as you're wrestling with the Bible. Will we be humble enough to say, "Okay, this is a book that's coming to us in an ancient context," or are we reading the Bible expecting there to be instructions about how to deal with artificial intelligence, how, what to do with microchips, what to do with, with um, you know the atomic bomb, you know things that didn't exist, but so often we can jump into these texts and really draw out the heart of God. And I think one example is uh, Paul. He talks about this, this weird obscure law about donkeys, right? It's like, um, I forget what the exact text is, but it's like donkeys and mules. And he draws out from that saying, Hey, if you're a minister, there should be giving, right? Do not muzzle
2: an ox. Yeah.
0: Do not muzzle an ox. But the heart of that is like, Hey, these things are working. And, And Paul draws out the heart of the law. So, I guess a long-winded point of saying some of these are going to be more explicit than others, right? The Ten Commandments are very explicit. They, they have explicit nature of God's heart in them, right? Do not do this. Do not do that. Do not kill. You know, uh, keep the, the Sabbath holy. All these different laws. On the flip side, there are going to be laws that we just have to do our dirty work homework, you know? We got to get into the context, and that's what the illustration hopefully gets you to see.
1: I think there's something beautiful about that too, because when we understand that, I mean, there's something amazing about. You might assume that God has this kind of plan against women, but you realize, like, no. God is. If God is just, God is good, God is holy, then He does this thing to actually take the power away from the kind of traditional power holders and put it back into his hands where it rightfully belongs. And it is just, it is different. I Actually, I'll talk about that a little bit later when I talk about slavery, um, and just how different, a lot of times when you go back and look at the ancient, other ancient civilizations that were along with them, how radically different the laws of the, and we have like recorded laws of these other nations and tribes and peoples, how radically different the Israelite law was, the Hebrew law was, the anything else that existed, how progressive and yeah. incredible it was. But I was, I was going to ask you, Patty, you kind of brought up this idea of Jesus, and there's this yes. movement of him. Mm-hmm. Like, how did in the New Testament, and when we see all these things, when, mm-hmm. when God put on flesh, Jesus Christ mm-hmm. walked the face of this earth, like, what was his relationship like with women?
2: Yeah, and I, I think, too, even going further back, we, if, if you start to really pay attention to the scriptures, like A.J. is saying, not just law, but narrative, we see women in critical places – of making treaties, of, of saving people groups of, I mean, not just the esters and the obvious, but if you start to really watch the role of women, even in the Old Testament, and then it just, it just explodes with when Jesus comes on the scene. And so we, we see that the whole narrative of Jesus's birth and we see the, him involving women in key places of ministry, using women. The lost parables—he uses a woman in the middle of those parables. He uses a woman for for praying righteously. He uses women through, throughout his teaching. Women—the use of women in in both his. Storytelling, his preaching, and then his ministry was radically countercultural for its time. In fact, it was stunning. The um, gospel writer Luke, fascinating. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, I mean, if you just were to look at Jesus' ministry and dot the women he intersected with, it is it is very consistent what he what he does with women. But the Gospel of Luke is super fascinating in that he always creates like a foil. The man in all of Luke's, in almost all of Luke's story, he, the woman is the one that's righteous and the man is the, is the one that is failing. Luke is trying to make a point that we can learn from women. You've got the Pharisee and the sinful woman. The Pharisee rebuked because he doesn't love like the sinful woman did. You even have Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth believes and Zechariah doesn't, but you see it throughout um, the ministry of Jesus. And then you also even see it in the Gospel of John with Mary Magdalene believing and been giving the, given sight of the risen Jesus and the ministry of reconciliation while the rest of the disciples are still hiding in unbelief. And that is just stunning for us as women, to see that Jesus incorporated. Women followed. Women gave. Women supported his ministry. Women were leaders in his ministry. Women sat at his feet in the position of disciples. He elevated women radically. Women were in the upper room at Pentecost. We believe women were probably part of the preaching of Pentecost. And then Romans, Paul mentions nine key women as co-laborers who were church planters and church leaders. Um, Peters and Paul, Paul's words on marriage, although to us it sounds demeaning when wives submit to your husbands, if you look at it culturally, women had zero rights. And to call men to love their wives and be faithful to their wives was radically countercultural in a Roman culture. A woman was less than a son. She was less than um, a slave in his home. And he could sleep with whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And the call to men to be faithful to their wives, to love their wives, to treat their wives as co-heirs is radical. The other piece that was really radical is the Ephesus church probably expected, if Paul was going to use an example of marriage, that... He would say that the husband is like God, the father, and the wife is like the son who obeys the father. But what does he do? He says the the husband is Christ, the suffering servant who dies to give life. And the wife is the bride of Christ. So again, back to what AJ said, we read these in our Western 21st century mindset. But if we get back to the culture, we realize that what God is doing is He is saying, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop! I am. I am doing something brand new, a whole new humanity, and then we go to, and we traject all the way into eternity to what marriage is really intended to be and who we will be—neither slave nor free, male nor female.
0: This is why I wanted to run in on this topic. Yeah. Run, <laughs> it's run. So
2: isn't it amazing? So I think for me, as a female, I wrote a study years ago of the women in the Gospels of Jesus, and it just radically turned my world upside down. Studying everything in the context, and it was like this: this Jesus, he's like a gospelized feminist. I mean, he truly is. He he elevates women and he represents the Father. He's the exegesis of God. He is the sermon of God. He is not different than the Father. This has always been the heart of the Father. Okay, I could go on forever. I'm going to stop so we can get on to slavery and slaughter.
1: I got slavery, and I was just thinking about, like, you'll hear us talk about All these things were going back to Genesis. Almost everything, if you get back to it, it goes back to Genesis and the created order, what God created this world to be. And thinking about like, when this question, you know, the question that was originally asked, again, like, Danny mentioned these things. Danny mentioned that Christianity, the the scriptures stand against us. How do you see that? We see it first in Genesis, of course. Like, God creates us in his image, male and female. He creates people in his image and his likeness. We're not just this kind of, we're made to be like God like to image him, to represent him, to show him, to demonstrate him. But then the fall happens, we know those things, like sin enters the world, we violate God's commands, and then what's the curse? The curse is for man, like for for us, is to toil, like we're going to work the ground through painful toil, and it won't, it'll yield to its thorns and thistles. I mean, I, I've used this example before actually in here, but Like, anyone in here a gardener? Anyone like to, like, plant things? I like to try. I kill everything. I kill absolutely everything. Or I, like, a tomato, I grew a tomato plant. It grew healthy and nice. No tomatoes. I have no idea why I didn't get tomatoes. It looked nice. It looked healthy. It was full. Got the yellow flowers. Zero tomatoes came off of it. Incredible. So we have this kind of toiling we all know this. You go to work, you try things, you do things, you work hard, and it never quite works the way you want it to. It takes more work than you thought it should. It takes more time and all these different things. And as a result, that's part of the result of that is things like poverty. Part of the result of that is that we're not able to really supply for ourselves. And so we look at this idea of, so that's where we get to the idea of slavery. And I think for us in this room, especially in a North, like a USA context, in our minds, slavery instantly takes us back to civil war to the antebellum south to kind of institutionalize slavery as it was in the United States and you probably have heard this said before and i want to give you a couple reasons why it is we see this to be true and then also some reasons that it doesn't even it doesn't almost even matter but the slavery that is talked about in the scriptures like in uh, in if you want to go back and look at exodus chapter 21 talking about it's it's really about indentured servitude indentured servitude as it really is intended so there was one author i was reading today and he was saying like slavery isn't even really a word in the in the hebrew law it's really about servanthood. so you'll see this as a formal voluntary contract for employment you were and it was a wrestling and an instrument to fight poverty so let's just say i was i could not i could not provide for my family uh, you know, I was a I was a farmer, or I kept herds, and my animals died. The crops did not yield, and I was in dire straits financially. I could go to AJ as a wealthy landowner, someone who has of means, is in my clan. I could say like, Hey, I, let's do a sign for the next six, seven years. I will work for you, and you're going to provide for me and my and my household. And I would sign, write a formal contract, and boom. Like that would be the way it is. I mean, we do that today and we see that there's formal contracts that we enter into. We enter into agreements. Uh, a great way to think about it that I, I read in this book today is like a military service. You sign up, you enlist in the military and you're signing up for a contractual amount of time that really you, you, can't, you have a hard time getting out of. But that is your contract. But here's the thing that would happen in Israel, uh, in the Hebrew law. It was not permanent Uh, It was not just on the master to make it permanent. Actually, it's enshrined in law that any servant is released of, is offered a release of duty, no questions asked after seven years. So if you were, and and there was even this mechanism and tool in Israelite economy to forgive all debts. That would be a regular occurrence. And like, so if I was indebted to you, AJ, like at a certain point after a certain number of years, the debt would simply be canceled. I would be set free after seven years of like, being like in a contractual relationship with you, you would offer me to be free. And you'll see even in Exodus 21, it's this amazing thing. If I were to say like, AJ, actually, I like, I like working for you. I like being a part of your household. I like how you run things. Like you got comfy beds, you got a nice warm house, you, you great, you make great meals. Like I want to be a part of your family. I could actually enter into this like lifetime relationship with you, but we're, I'm a, I'm I'm an heir in your family, I'm a part of a family, I'm not just some servant, I'm actually part of the family, which again, radically different from the rest of the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, it was, it was an indefinite amount of time. You were, a, you were a servant in most of those cases, as long as the master wanted you to be a servant. It was not a contract, it was, it was I was stuck. Um, you, like, in, the, in the Hebrew law, there's rights for servants, like injured servants. If you injured me, I could be set free instantly. I'd be set free. So like, don't hurt me or I'm <laughs> out of here. In the rest of the world, it's like, they could, they could beat their servants. They could even murder their servants and they would be free from judgment. Not so in Israel. If in, in Israel, if you, if you killed me, AJ, you would Uh-oh. be put to death. Like the yeah. rights of the servants were intact. It's so markedly different from other cultures.
2: And the servants even had the Sabbath. Yeah. They were to give all their servants the Sabbath They, off as they well. had
1: all the rights and privileges in all those different ways of, of a citizen. It was this incredible thing. So it is different. If you're thinking antebellum south, like think about that. Man, think about what happened in the South. Uh, also just before I even get to that, kidnapping. Illegal. It was illegal to kidnap someone to become to make him your slave. It was illegal to do that because again the Bible has this view, the Hebrew laws view, that servants and masters alike are created in the same way, in the image and likeness of God, and so that's what you see enshrined in Israel law. Over, that's what the law does. So think about that in the antebellum South. It's illegal to kid. Like people will say, like, "Hey, people in the South, in the antebellum South, like would enforce slavery," and they say, like, "See, the Bible talks about slavery." But man, if you look at slavery in the Bible, it is nothing like that. Not allowed to kidnap people. The slave trade should not exist. It cannot exist based on the scriptures. People were whipped and beaten and murdered. Cannot exist in relation to what the Bible commands of us. Uh, People were mistreated, their slavery was indefinite, lifelong, generational. Cannot happen if you're following the scriptures. And then even towards the New Testament, we see slavery in the New Testament. Of course, slavery is a part of the Roman world. Conquered people were enslaved and brought in. And even in the New Testament, we even have a whole letter written from Paul, Philemon, written to a slave-owning Christian about a, uh, one of his servants that Paul was sending back to him. And here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says. This radical. And again, this is in de- more of indentured servitude. It's not slavery like the Antebellum South. But here's what Paul says. Perhaps the reason he was separated, so that Philemon's servant had run away and had made contact with Paul. Paul is telling him, like, hey, Philemon's a believer. I'm going to send you with this letter in good faith and at, make a request of Philemon. Here's what he says. Perhaps the reason that he was separated, This servant's name as Onesimus, was separated from you for a little while, was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave. Don't miss this. No longer as a servant or a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would have welcomed me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. So Paul's even, the call is like, if you, man, treat, if you've got someone that's a servant in your household, don't treat them like an employee. Don't treat them as a second-class citizen. Treat them like a family member, a brother or sister in the Lord. And that is, rad- I mean, women were treated less than ser- pa- The scriptures lift these people up, 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 up. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, people cite this all the time. Like Paul says, like, hey, if you, were, if you were a slave when you were called to Christ, don't let it trouble you. So there's that. People will section that out and just say, like, see, the Bible loves slavery. But right after that, in that same sentence, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. <laughs> so it doesn't even, it doesn't even support, he, Paul is like an advocate for freedom of like that kind of indentured servant, even that indentured servitude lifestyle. But at the same time, it's just this call, a higher call to contentment. So even in these things, I was just thinking about that, like when that objection comes up to you, it's hard. Cause we have a legacy in our, especially in our country. And unfortunately it's based a, a lot of people Many of these slaveholders justified it with Christianity. See, the Bible talks about slavery. See, it says, if you're a slave, like, you should be fine with it. Don't worry about it. But when you take one step closer, when you peel back one more layer, you see instantly, like, this does not work, and this is not the heart of God, and this is not what he had for his people. And that we can say that these things were reprehensible, and we can reject them outright and say, no, not of God, not of his word, not of his people.
2: Another interesting piece when you add connecting to women, you know the yeah. the first woman to to name God, the God who sees me, was an Egyptian slave. Yeah, and she is a woman that God pursued and made sure she knew I he she knew I see you, mm-hmm. and the value that God would include that in the Book of Genesis. So we we also see that, and then God seeing and hearing and moving when that when his people were enslaved so God's heart towards those who are enslaved just as those who are oppressed is just stunning yeah he weeps
0: this is where the other like you know if you're out there talking to non-christians I feel like the objection is okay if this was the God that could see all of time right Mm -hmm. why is this in there in the first place right? Why even include the word slavery? Why even give them the chance to misinterpret that? And so have you thought about that at all? Like um, objection? Yeah. I have some thoughts, I guess.
1: I mean, I feel like part of it too is like, yeah, it is that question like, why is this there in the first place? But I feel like, I think I said this maybe last week or before, one of the things I love about the scriptures is it's not, I mean, we believe it's, it's real. It's, a, it's an actual account of what is, what was, and what is. And so it's based in a real world. In the real world, there is poverty. In the real world, there is slavery. In the real world, there is oppression to women and to various people groups. And there's, in the real world, there is war. And I feel like there's a one thing where it's like, if the Bible didn't address some of these things or acknowledge them or even give some of these commands and rules, it'd be, it would be a strange book in a way. It's like, it wouldn't be practical and useful for the people that are using it. So God is seeing into this world, and he hate, we know that he hates oppression. That's why even in this, like, don't treat them as a slave, as a second-class citizen, as subhuman. Treat them as someone that's created in my image and likeness. Treat them as a brother. Treat them as a family member. So I feel like there's that, that part that resonates with me so much is just it's real. It's the real—the Bible deals with the real world as it really is, not as some fairy tale world that we, can't, that we cannot relate to.
0: Yeah, and I think just going back to that first illustration— Uh, By the way, the illustration comes from Dan Kimball. It's called How, Parentheses, Not to Read the Bible. Um, So it's a great book if you're interested in this stuff. But it goes back to the the situations like, okay, we can either approach texts like these uh, with our American mindset and what we know about the world and, you know, approach it with the antebellum south in our mind and, and have that. Or we just do a little bit of reading, right? We do a little bit of homework on Philemon, on Exodus 21, Uh, on the culture of the time, because, you know, now we're going into like extra biblical stuff where it's like scholars have had to excavate this information out, have had to study, you know, ancient Near Eastern stuff. But uh, you end up with Psalm 119, right? Where David or the author of Psalm 119, whoever that is, um, is just exclaiming how awesome the law is. How amazing the law is! And as a reader, you're like, "Oh my goodness! How can I read?" How awesome the law is! Well, I think this is what we're getting at. He sees how the law has just radically transformed um, civilization in God's chosen people. And I think, I, I, this is one of my favorite topics because it really comes down to like how are we approaching this book? You know, is it something that you know? zapped from from God himself and it, we should expect in every generation it speaks exactly the truth like microchips and nuclear bombs or all that or did this book and this goes back to the sermon that I gave is this book given to us in a human context like does God enjoy and love and find glory in working through human beings and I think that's what, who our God is. He enjoys partnering with, with us. He's created us in the image of God, as you're saying. And because of that, we receive this text, and we get a window of how God worked into a civilization that may have existed thousands of years ago, but we're full of human beings. And it's just, man, it's just a radical way to, to look at the Bible, and one that I think is really important to emphasize. Yeah.
2: And just seeing the absolute culmination of where all this is going, even with slavery, of Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a slave so that he could set us free, so he could forgive us of the way that we enslave one another, maybe not literally in the ways that we see in the Old Testament, but because of that fall. So I just think that's so stunning too to just see the narration, the narr- the whole story of God's story pointing us to his son who would be the slave that we need to set us free.
1: AJ, since you were going to be here, we thought we'd give you, (laughs) save the best for last. So um, talk about that. Like, again, the question that's asked, Danny uh, talks about these things like, hey, the Bible actually, God actually stands against these things, but we do have these instances. Like there's these holy wars, these things that God has called, called his people, the Israelites to go do. I mentioned Jericho, but there's many others, like a campaign against the Canaanite people as they're going through Israel. Like, so how do you, where do you see that? Like, how do you see, how do you. Justify that? How do you answer that question? Like, how can we? What's yeah. up with that? Why does God let that happen?
0: Yeah, and as I'm talking about getting into the context, like this is probably the one of the most difficult ones because there, like you said, there is a lot of history. There's a lot of baggage to it, but the same principles applies, right? So they're instructions given to a human civilization at one point in time. So it's best for us to go to those instructions. So if you got a Bible. We're going to flip to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Oh, man. There should be one in the seat back. Use your phone. So Deuteronomy 7 comes to us as the fifth book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And as we've been mentioning, we can always bring it back to the very beginning. What was life supposed to be like in God's good world. And there was harmony between the, the man and the woman. There was harmony in, our, in interpersonal relationships. There was this idea that they were meant to be fruitful and multiply. And so the garden wasn't only meant for two people. It was meant to expand to image bearers spreading across the land and glorifying God. And then the serpent happened, right? The fall. And this is where we get this division, this interpersonal disharmony. We get this... Uh, the first generation right after Adam and Eve is Cain and Abel. And the tragedy of this are, are, are these two brothers, these two siblings have strife because of sin. Right? One offers the, the, the fatty portion of his offering. The other one comes and it, the implication is that he might be holding back some of his offerings. And, and Cain grows jealous of Abel and kills Abel. And so that is like the first spiral of all these violent effects. You get to Genesis six, you get the flood, you get to uh, Genesis 11, the scattering of the Tower Tower of Babel and the nations start to happen. And so it's it's a tragedy because in the end, all of these people come from the same lineage, right? They're brothers and sisters that are finding strife within each other because large part of sin. And so we get Deuteronomy, these instructions in Deuteronomy seven, we'll start with the first two verses here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Man, strong words. Yeah. The fascinating thing is the list of ites that you guys just read. Um, they're summarized as the Canaanites. And the first time we see the Canaanites mentioned and they're evil is in Genesis 15. And this is way before any of this is happening. This is when Abraham was living. And in Genesis 15, 16, it says that the evil of the Canaanites hasn't come to its fruition. There's still more time. God is still being patient. This was like about 400 years before these events happen, which will happen in Joshua and Judges. There's a 400-year gap of God just wanting his people to repent, to turn. So even in that little fact, there's God's mercy in that. So then you get into the context Like, what is the situation God is trying to govern here? And that's the basic question for any of these questions. And what you'll find, what ancient historians have found, is that, how many of you guys think Leviticus has a lot of, like, laws that you're like, who would ever do that? Bestiality. Like, who is ever going to do that? Uh, These weird, sexual, lewd acts. Who's ever going to do that? Guess what? Canaanites. The Canaanites are going to do that, right? They have gods, Baal and Asherim, that, hey, if we have more sex, we're going to have more crops. That was their thinking. And not only that, there's this god named Anath. I don't know the pronunciation. I'm just reading this and learning this as I'm going along too. Uh, But this god required blood. And so there's this testimony uh, in one of the archaeological digs. It says, the blood was so deep that she waited in it, up to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Under her feet were human heads. Above her, human hands flew like locusts. In her sensuous delight, she decorated herself, suspended heads while she attached hands to her girdle. Her joy at the butchery is described in even more sadistic language. Her liver swelled with laughter. Her heart was full of joy. The liver of Aneth was full of exultation. Afterward, Aneth was satisfied and washed her hands in human gore before proceeding to other occupations. You guys, the Canaanites were crazy. <laughs> uh, and not only that, one of the, the, the thing that takes the cake is, I don't know if you've ever heard of Molech. So Molech is a god that gets ref- referenced a lot. It's a Canaanite god. And essentially, uh, the statue, I have to stand up for this for those of you guys listening to the podcast. Uh, the statue itself had the god with the hands holding out and underneath the leg portion was a fire pit. And what they would do is they would light up the fire pit and in the hands they would lay an infant and they would burn it, And it was a sacrifice. And it, the surrounding people would do drum beats, right? The reason why they would do loud drums is so they couldn't hear the cries. You guys, this is the people that God was dealing with. These are the people that that God was dealing with. It was was crazy. And and so I hear a lot of people saying like, God, there's so much evil in the world. Why don't you do something? And then he does something and then we got a problem with it, right? This is God doing something about this wickedness, right? But it's not only that the Canaanites were, were so evil. You could flip it on its head too because Israel eventually got the same treatment. Right? Israel got the same treatment. They got kicked out of their land because they were doing evil things. They were worshiping other gods. So it's not like this God is um, xenophobic or you know, phobic toward Canaanites. He's phobic toward sin. He's phobic toward evil. You see this in Amos 1 and 2. is talking about the surrounding nations. And, and God is saying, yeah, I don't, I don't care what nation you are. Look what you're doing. You're ripping open pregnant women. You're, you're doing all these crazy, lewd things acts. And so you get passages like this where it, it starts to soften your heart a little bit. Man, I, I, I would want a God that might do these things, but it doesn't end there because we'll go on to the next couple of verses here. If you're looking down uh, verses three and four, because right after he says, destroy them completely, this is what the passage says. Do not intermarry with them, Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now I have a question. If these people were utterly destroyed, how are the Israelites going to intermarry with these people? How are they going to give their sons and daughters to these people if they're completely destroyed? You see the tension here, right? In one in one breath, he's saying, wipe them to complete destruction. And yet in the other breath, he's saying, hey, there's gonna be people left over. And so scholars have looked at this and said, hey, we can't just say that like the Sunday school answer where these guys just come in, wipe everything away. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's a little bit more nuanced. And so you'll see, you know, Joshua 1040 says, Joshua took the whole land, but then you'll see the problem in Judges is that they're dealing with a lot of these foreigners. Like, so, so which is it, right? And what they'll find is that there's a lot of language that gets exaggerated. For example, uh, you know, you might be watching the Warriors, and guess what? I know this is going to hurt me. Yeah, don't hurt me. <laughs> the sons destroyed yes, the Warriors. It was utter destruction. It was utter destruction, right? They lost by like four, right? So he gets it. (laughs) The sons didn't actually kill the warriors, right? They they didn't. Steph Curry's not dead, to my knowledge. Yeah, he's good. Prayers. Yes. (laughs) Um, But this is the language that is often used. And what they found in these five different things, I can't even read the king's names, but they found this similar language, like utterly destroyed, like competition, like I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Like these are common phrases that get used, but then it's like, how are they going to intermarry them? Yeah. And so there's a little bit of complexity. We see this, and then I want to finish out really quick. I know I've been talking a lot. Deuteronomy 7, 5 to 6 kind of gives us some insight into what they're actually after. This is what you are to do with them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And so what you see here is God's heart isn't necessarily destroying people, but these people have so integrated with the the spiritual realm, the, the gods of the Canaanites, it's been so integrated with them that they get caught up in this spiritual battle, right? Because here we see that, that God is concerned about utterly destroying, not he's concerned about utterly destroying their gods. Yeah. And these people have been so intertwined with the gods that they be, almost became indistinguishable, right? And so one of these arguments, uh, it's called the Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser, kind of talks about this unseen combination of the gods of the Canaanites and the people of Canaan. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of more explanation as to what's going on. But I got one more thing, I promise. <laughs> hey, you're here today. You have to do it. You have to know, it all out. You might be saying, okay, that's a nice cop-out, but it still doesn't explain all this language about um, it does sound like that God is devoting entire communities to destruction. And I would say this is probably one of the hardest things for us, again, in our Western American context to wrestle with, right? Because here we are, we have this beautiful place. We have this beautiful city. We have so many beautiful things. A lot of us have never seen war or been in war or seen the the atrocities that humankind can, can hash out on one another, right? And so I love this quote from Miroslav Volf, who was uh, in Croatia when um, they were suffering tremendously there. And he says this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a causality of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. That's awesome. And that's one of the beautiful things, again, always bringing this back to Jesus, who claims to have fulfilled the law. He was the one who enacted what the heart, right? We've been trying to capture the heart of the law. He was the one who embodied that. And what Jesus does, he, he says to Peter, you're going you're to take out your sword, you're probably going to fall by your sword. That's not my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. In fact, I'm going to let the sword take me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one that goes on the cross. So that, you, you know, there's so many death penalty sentences. If, if you do this, I, I, you get stoned. If you suffer this and, and, you know, you take them out and you, you mark them unclean, I'm going to take all of that. We deserve death in so many ways. Our sin brings the wrath of God that he is talking about. It's just animated in just a bigger way in tragedy. But we deserve the same thing, do we not? And God has taken that penalty upon himself for us.
1: Danny also mentioned this idea of kind of like of spiritual trauma and spiritual abuse. And again, I like recognize in this room that some of you have had that happen, that the Bible has been used wrongly against you, that that maybe you heard something in a church or from a church leader or from a pastor or from someone that you trusted where it just, man, it like soured you a little bit, Right, rightfully so, man, it, it caused a lot of questioning. Maybe you're in here tonight and you've been wrestling with that. Maybe you're coming back. I know I've talked to many people and you can see some people in this room or even at, we've even him back to church month. I've talked to many people that, man, they've been hurt by the church. But Danny closed the message and I loved what he did. He made this commitment to y'all and to our entire church family that this church would be, would, would be one that actually follows God, that it wouldn't be a place uh, that is sexist. It wouldn't be a place that is racist. It wouldn't be a, pl- a place that condones needless violence and hate. Um, and because we know that, People in the name of God have perpetrated some of these things. So, one, um, you know, Patty, you've worked a lot in in your in your former in your in your previous career, like in, as a uh, as a biblical counselor and therapist. How did you? Can you help us define what that is? And then the second part is, you know, Danny's made that commitment. We we all agree with it, obviously. We are a part of it. He has committed us to it too. So how are you? How do you do that? Like, how do you make sure? That you're using the scriptures and the word of God rightly and not to injure people, not to bring harm, not to bring wounding. So, Patty, can you just give us a little description, yeah. Yeah, I th- definition?
2: I think it's important to distinguish spiritual abuse from spiritual trauma and also spiritual abuse of scripture versus the mishandling of scripture that's unintentional. Or, I mean, I can look back on teachings I've been teaching for, I don't know. 25 years now, God's word, and I can look at early messages where I did use scripture now looking back wrongly, Um, but I was not trying to manipulate, coerce, or feed on God's sheep. I just needed to grow up, right? So I think spiritual abuse, we want to be really careful. It's wielding scripture, doctrine, or spiritual authority to manipulate dominate, deflect, or direct a narrative towards the abuser's favor. So again, it's about power. It's about using scripture, using doctrine, using a position as a pastor or director um, to use that coercively, um, to to either hide to make you look good, or to basically when Jesus talks about feeding on the sheep versus feeding the sheep, when you are using the people of God to, to do something for you. So the abuse is when was when somebody, um, you have the experience of being abused by a spiritual leader. Trauma is the effects. So sometimes we don't have the effect. Sometimes we can be spiritually abused and we're not triggered. Those are triggers. Sometimes I sat with people who've been abused with scripture and for a while, I can't counsel from the scriptures. I have to counsel from God's character. And from story from the Bible, I can't use the actual word of God because they've been so abused by the word of God that when I open the Bible and quote a scripture that sends them into a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And so you have to go slowly with those who have been traumatized by, by, uh, by scripture, but I think it's really important that we don't throw the word trauma around a lot and weaponize trauma. It it dilutes and um, minimizes those who are experiencing significant trauma. We can be abused without being traumatized, um, and we can work through trauma quickly. I and mean, not everything is a trauma. Um, trauma is when you are having ongoing effects of an of an abuse that are that can, you can have triggers that don't even make sense to you because our bodies remember our stories. So that's why we respond with a panic attack or a Mm -hmm. um, turning flesh or feeling like you can't breathe or because even if you can't remember everything that happened to your, your body remembers. And so I couldn't remember, I couldn't tell you why I was having that effect until later. Yeah. So does that help?
1: Yes. Patty, I just want to say I'm so grateful that you're here. You bring this kind of (laughs) wisdom and experience. That's a blessing to all of us. So if you don't know Patty yet, you should know her. She's an incredible woman with incredible experiences and incredible woman of God. And, uh, Yeah, so I was just thinking about kind of where. So, for
2: the second part of that question. So, how do you guard yourself? For me personally, I think coming back to this whole theme of tonight is the word of God brings life, Mm -hmm. not death. And so, for me, I'm always wanting to be careful with scripture. Is this going to bring life or death? And even in a counseling situation, I may have to ask how is this scripture or this truth landing on you? What are you experiencing right now when I say this to you? Because of their story, they may hear a specific verse in a certain way. So one of the ways I make sure I'm not harming people with scripture is I ask a lot of questions if I'm using scripture and somebody's been through sorrow. So when I say to you, God is near to the brokenhearted, what are you hearing? Because maybe they that that actually has been used to harm them in some way. And so that's going to be one thing. Also, just keeping all of scripture in the whole story of pointing to Jesus we just cannot overemphasize enough that all of scripture points to a suffering savior who loves us. So, um, keeping the, their story and my story in the story of God um, helps me to not use scripture to my end, but to be their end. So, again, am I feeding yeah. them? The other caution for me is when I start to find my identity in ministry or my own identity or my own, um, yeah, just I, I need it, I'm probably going to be in danger of using a, a position or a scripture or, or an authority to harm another. So if I ever need to be um, needed, if I ever need to be in ministry, I'm in danger. I, I could I could harm. There's lots of other ways, but I'll let you guys share yours. You know, yeah.
0: One of the core components in that one book, how not to read the Bible. Um, and I want to say this because I feel like what you guys just witnessed was what we exercise pretty much every day to make yeah. sure that we're not landing people in that spot. Like we, like Danny reiterated on Sunday, like we have this commitment to you guys and to ourselves even mm-hmm. we want to handle it properly. Yeah. Like we, we love this book. We believe it's divinely inspired. We believe just God, God's word is just cutting. But uh, one of the, the concept is um, don't read a Bible verse.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't read a Bible verse. Yeah, you part, be like, unpack uh, that one.
0: Okay, yeah, let's unpack yeah,
2: it. Yeah, go go go.
0: If you read one single Bible Bible verse, you might end up in trouble, right? If you read a verse and say, "Hey, look, blah 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 blah, slavery. It condones slavery," right? But if you just read the next verses or you read the context you'll find out what's going on. And not only the context of the text, but you've seen us. We've done our homework of what was happening during the time. What was the author's intended meaning when this passage was written? That's one big thing, author's intended meaning. And then, as you were saying, Patty, like one of the, the things in First John, I think it's chapter 4, says, test the spirits. Mm-hmm. I love the, who is it, the Bereans that went home and just like checked us on all this stuff. Check us on all this stuff, right? Go and read the books that we recommended. Check us. Like, do, do your homework as well. But one of the ways you can test the spirits in 1 John 4 is to see if it's making much of Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. Like, is it making much of Jesus or is it making much of our homework that we did and, like, the applications that we have for you guys in your life and we're pressing our thumb on you guys to, to live this way? Or is it making much of Jesus? So you look at all three of these categories And what we want to do and what we feel like is glorifying to God is just look at how Jesus did it. He's the one who claimed to fulfill the law, like didn't miss an iota, didn't miss a a dot in the law. He fulfilled it. And he is, it's just so, he's so beautiful. Yeah. It's it's amazing. He
2: became the oppressed, the slave and the slaughtered for us.
0: Amen.
1: I think I will go along on mine because you guys said it really well, but part of it is uh, last the, recently had to do have, have kind of a difficult conversation um, with a group of people and I really wanted to prepare well for it and talk about it from the scriptures and some of these things and uh, I got you know it was a difficult one and but people responded well and I got a text later and the person just thanked me and they said am not trying to make much money, but what she said what she appreciated about it was it was humble and it was factual and I felt like that could sum up like what I'm going for all the time it's like I want to be humble it's I want to, as much like we're human, we have egos, all these things, but as much as I can submit myself to the Lord and say, like, I do not want this to be about me. One of my like, presuppositions about when I come up and preach, too, is like, this book was written to people like you. That I could understand it. And it was written for a time. And my primary role, even when I'm up here, is like I've had the benefit of having time to be educated, like go to school for it, to learn all these things about its history that you may not have, simply do not have time for. And the people who originally read this, they lived in that world. They understood it. So I just want to make it more understandable. So I want it to be humble and I want it to be factual. I want it to be not based on what I believe or what I think about it. I want it to be based on what it says because I believe it's a truth that's for us to be understood. You know, I did children's ministry for a long time here and elsewhere. It's like, and you, you realize really quickly, like, man, this is understandable for children. I want, it's not that, it's not always easy, but it is simple. And it, it, it's something that can be understood by them. So humble and factual is something I want to do. And then also, even here, just so you know, like, kind of how we do it, a little bit of a peek behind the scenes. Like, every week when we are doing a sermon, like, before we do a sermon, we gather together a team of people. And we, the whoever's speaking, like Danny this week, would have got, goes before us and gives a sermon and gets fe- solicits feedback Just like, am I right here? Am I on the right track? Do we have agreement there? So there's even accountability that's not just like AJ, Patty, myself, or Danny. So like just getting up and spouting off what we think about something. Hey, we want to check it with other people that know the scriptures, have studied the scriptures. So there's that internal accountability there too. And of course, like we hear from. Y'all too. And that's a very helpful thing that we hear how it like lands with you. Were we communicating it well? Were we being clear? Were we being humble yeah. and factual?
2: And yeah. I love about the sermon review time too. And hopefully what we're doing here is, is anything I'm saying or sharing, can it be harmful? Yeah. Can it be misunderstood and harmful? And do we take the time to unpack it a little bit? So even with last week's sermon, we talked a little bit about this idea of, of sexism and this commitment Danny brought that out, you know, we're going to make this commitment. So we said, we need to unpack what that means more for our people. And there was just this humility and love in the room of like, yeah, we want to make sure we are committed and that we unpack what that means. So even just in the words, I just love the humility. I think somebody asked me about, you know, I'm new here, three months. Um, What am I seeing as themes? And I I will tell you, um, thank you earlier for your kind words. Um, I'll, that probably the thing that I am appreciating most about being here, sorry, I'm going to get emotional, is the humility on this staff. Mm. And that's got to be one of the most, like Ryan said, humility and love is going to be the thing that's going to protect us the most mm. from weaponizing scripture. And if we can continue to go deeper and deeper as a as a people that walk with one another in humility and love, um, it's, it's just stunning. So I'm very wow. grateful to be here Thank and you, to see this, just this overwhelming theme or character of the staff of humility. It's really stunning.